1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 12 through 20. I'm going to start by just painting a scenario that will be familiar to you if you've ever been a parent. So you've got this small child, four, five, six, seven, eight years old, and you've got to take them somewhere they don't want to go. You've got to take them to the doctor where they're going to get shots, or you've got to take them to some boring grown-up event. You couldn't find a babysitter. They're going to have to sit through it with you. Or worst of all, you've got to make them sit and listen to a Baptist preacher talk, and they're like, give me the shots instead, okay? What do you do in that scenario? If you're like me, if you're like most parents, you say, listen, sweetie, I know this isn't going to be good. I know you don't want to do this, but if you'll just hold on a little bit, we'll go get ice cream afterwards, okay? We'll, we'll go to the pool, or we'll go, uh, we'll go to Toys R Us, and I'll let you pick out a toy, or we'll go to the ball game tonight. If you'll just hold on a little longer, things are going to get better. Now, what are you doing when you say that? You're not bribing your child, because if you were bribing them, you'd be giving them a choice, and you're not giving them a choice. Now, take it from me, bribery is not off the table for parents. That's a, that's a key tool. But what you're actually doing in this situation is you're giving them hope. You're saying, the near future is not good, but if you'll just wait a little longer, it's going to be worth it. You're going to be glad. Now, in order for that to work, two things have to be true. First of all, the, the hope you offer your child has to be tangible. It has to be something they can understand, something they actually want. You can't just say, hey, sweetie, if you'll go to the doctor with me and get these shots, afterwards we'll do something fun. No, you have to paint a picture for them. You have to say something that they can imagine, that they can understand, that they actually desire. It has to be tangible, but it's also got to be reliable. You can't lie to your child. If you ever threaten your child, you better follow through. If you ever promise something, you better follow through with that too. If there's ever been a time in the past where you said, yeah, well, we'll get ice cream, and then you forgot, or you got too busy, then they won't believe you anymore. Hope, in order to be hope, has to be tangible and reliable. We're in a series right now called Hope, What the World is Looking For. Hope is the expectation of having something to look forward to that you know is so important, so wonderful, that it'll get you through anything in this life. Little children learn at an early age. If you've got something to look forward to, you can stand anything. Right now, kids all across this room are saying, man, school's back in. But hey, Labor Day's in a couple of weeks. And then it'll be Christmas. And then a couple more months and it'll be spring break. And then a couple more months and it'll be summer. Always something to look forward to to get you through the hard times. This world needs hope, and this world doesn't have hope. It's longing for what it can't have, because the things this world relies on, the things this world hopes, the things this world hopes in, are either not tangible or they're unreliable. What I want to say to you today is the hope that we have in Christ is the only hope in all the world that is both tangible and reliable. It's the only hope that won't let you down. It's the only hope that will carry you through no matter what's happening to you. We're going to look at why our hope is tangible and reliable. We're going to talk about how it's grounded in an actual historical event. We're going to talk about how we know that that event actually happened. We're going to look at four proofs that it did. This is an apologetic message, unapologetically apologetic. So if you're not yet a believer in Christ, I'm so thankful you're here. I'm, I'm so glad someone brought you here, and I hope that today's message will help you come closer to making that decision for Christ. If you are a believer in Christ, I hope this strengthens your faith and fills you with a more intense hope. But most of all, I hope, 
I hope that it leads you to say, I need to share this with someone else. To call the church office this week and say, hey, give me a CD of that sermon. I want to give it to my friend. Or email a friend and say, here's a link to our website. You need to hear this. Or call me up and say, hey, he, he reads. He doesn't listen. So give me, give me a printed copy. I'll do it for you. Okay? So let's take a look at 1 Corinthians 15. We're studying all through this series, 1 Corinthians 15, one of the great chapters of the Bible. Last week, we looked at the gospel truth, the most important truth, where our hope is found in the fact that Christ came, God came in the form of a man. He died for our sins, and he was raised the third day. Now, verse 3 says, But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that He raised Christ from the dead, but He didn't raise Him from the dead, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins." then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So Paul makes this transition. He's been talking about the gospel. He mentions the resurrection of Jesus. And then he said, but if Jesus has been raised... How can some of you say there's no resurrection? Now, what is he talking about there? Because we need to be clear. He's not right there talking about Easter. He will in just a moment, but he's talking about something else here. Need to to help you understand and remind you, this is not a book that Paul was writing. This is a letter. It's an actual letter to an actual group of people in, in a period of time in a city far away. He's writing to the church in a city called Corinth, this Greek city in the first century. And in case you don't know, Corinth was a tough place to build a church. I would not want to be pastor of First Baptist Corinth, okay? Corinth was sin city. It's where you went to do the kinds of things your mother would not approve of. There was even a euphemism in that culture. If you saw someone doing immoral things, going running wild, basically, you would say, hey, look, he's Corinthianizing. You know, they used to say, what happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. Okay, I made that part up. I'm glad you laughed. But, but the other part is true. And there was, there was, it, it was very hard. These people had come out of this very godless lifestyle, worshiping other gods. And now they were following Jesus, the perfect one. They were becoming holy. And the devil hated that, and so he did everything he could to try to split that church up. And one of the tactics Satan used was he sowed false teaching in the church at Corinth. And so there would be rumors going around like, hey, you know, that, um, you know that there's no resurrection, right? You know that after we die, our bodies go into the ground and that's it for our bodies. We're, we're just spirits floating in the ether. You understand, they weren't saying that there's no heaven. They weren't saying that there's no afterlife. They were saying that the afterlife is not a physical realm. That when we die, our bodies go into the ground and that's it. And by the way, If you surveyed most Christians, I bet most Christians would say the same thing. 
Because we've seen TV shows and movies and cartoons, and when we die, what happens? We get a little halo, and we fly up to heaven on our angel wings, where we sit on a cloud and we strum on harps. And can we be honest? That would get old in about 30 seconds. I, I'm sorry, if you're a harpist, I, I, it's a beautiful instrument. I don't want to listen to it for all eternity, much less play it for all eternity. So we have this idea of heaven as this ethereal place. And Paul says, no, that's, that's not the way it is at all. See, the biblical vision of heaven is totally different. Remember, when Jesus was dying, he said to the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. Not someday, not uh, eventually, today. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Christian teaching is very clear that the moment a Christian dies, you are in the presence of God. And that's great. But we don't know anything about that existence. That's not tangible. That's not something we can hope in. So our real hope comes later. Our real hope comes when Jesus returns. Jesus said in John 5, 28, a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. He wasn't being metaphorical. You read through the whole scriptures and it's there over and over and over again. There will be a literal resurrection of the dead. We're going to talk in a couple of weeks about what our new bodies will be like, but the truth is we don't spend eternity flapping with angels' wings. In fact, we're not going to have angel wings ever. We're not ethereal spirits floating in the ether. We're not absorbed into some larger consciousness like they teach in Eastern religions. We will spend eternity on a real earth, a new, renewed, and revived planet earth in resurrected, perfect bodies. I know you want details. We'll get into details in a couple of weeks. Just know that's our future. That's our hope. And that, to me, is a lot more exciting than some spiritual existence. I can get my mind around that. In fact, you can too, and I know that because I've heard you talk, and I've heard you say things like, man, I really wish that I, I, really wish that I, I could get well. I've been sick all this time, and, and, and I wish I could get over this. I, I, I got hurt a few years ago, and I never have gotten over that injury. I wish I could get over it. I wish I was younger, and I could do the things I used to be able to do. Or I, I wish that I was smarter. I wish that my mind worked a little better. I wish I didn't keep making the same mistakes over and over again. I wish this world wasn't the way it was. I wish there wasn't so much violence and anger and, and, and racism and, and division. And whenever you say those things, you know what you're doing? You're expressing homesickness for a place you haven't been yet. See, you're hoping in something that's real. Someday you will have a body that doesn't break down. You will have a mind that doesn't forget. You will have a soul that doesn't sin. You will have a world where things are the way they're supposed to be because everything will have been redeemed. That's our vision. That's our hope. Is that tangible? Can you get your mind around that? Can you sit and, and daydream about that? Absolutely. And it's all true because Christ rose. Because Christ rose. See, Paul's, re Paul's logic is, is pretty hard to argue with. He says, listen, you people are going around saying, hey, there's no resurrection. Once we're dead, our spirits go and our bodies stay. He said, if that's true, then, in, then not even Jesus rose. If that's true, then, then Jesus didn't even rise from the dead. And if Jesus didn't rise, Paul says, four things are true. If Jesus didn't rise, number one, we've been preaching lies to you. The gospel is baloney. Number two, your faith is vain. You might as well give up on Christianity. It's not worth it. 
Number three, people who've died in Christ are gone forever. All those lovely words we say at the funeral where we say, oh, we'll see them again, that's, that's a load of hogwash. We'll never see them again. I mean, maybe at best we'll be, we'll be spirits together in some spiritual realm, but you won't recognize her and she won't recognize you because you won't have bodies. And fourth, if Christ isn't raised, then, then we're, the, we're the most pathetic people on earth. Out of all the people who've ever lived, we're the most to be pitied because think about those Christians in Corinth. You know, one moment you're living a beer commercial, wine, women, and song, doing whatever you want. The next moment you've surrendered your life to Christ and everyone thinks you're crazy. Your family disowns you. Your boss fires you. Your neighbors ridicule you. Both pagan and Jewish think you're ridiculous. Some of you go to prison. Some of you are martyred. You have the knowledge every day, it could be me next. And Paul says, if all that's true and there's no resurrection, we've wasted our lives. What Paul is saying is the very, the very future of the planet, our happiness, turns on whether or not a first century Jewish rabbi stayed dead. It's the turning point of all history. Did Jesus rise or did he not? Did Jesus come back from the dead or is it just a, a lovely story we tell about rebirth? right? What's the truth? Paul says, Jesus has been raised again. Verse 20. I love verse 20. He's, he's been giving us all these negatives. Man, if Jesus isn't raised, this is wrong and this is wrong and Christianity's useless and we might as well all quit. But verse 20 says, but Jesus has been raised. And then he says, he's the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. What does that mean? That's not a term we use today, first fruits. I bet you haven't used that term all week. They would have understood it in Paul's day. You see, when God was establishing the nation of Israel, one of the things he set up was this idea of the tithe. The tithe means that whatever you get, whatever you get, you give off the top to God. Tithe literally means tenth. See, a Jewish farmer, when he had planted and, and he tended his garden, his crops. The first time he went through to harvest, the very first load he would get out of that field, he would take it directly to the temple and offer it to God. It was an act of faith. It was an act of obedience. He's saying, Lord, everything that I have is really yours. I'm just acknowledging that by giving you this gift. And I know that there's a lot more where that came from. I'm not going to starve to death because you're going to provide for me because I've trusted you with my first fruits. We do the same thing today, even if we're not gardeners, by giving a tithe of our income. So when I get paid, if I write a check to the church or I set it up online to say, hey, take 10% of my paycheck right off the top, I'm doing the first fruits thing. It's different than if I say, okay, I'm going to pay my bills and I'm going to um, buy my kids some toys and some clothes and some school supplies and I'm going to take my wife out to supper and I'm going to, you know, uh, pay my, make sure I've got direct TV because football season's starting. And once all that's done, whatever's left over, I'll give that to God. No, that's not what we do. If we're in obedience to God, we give him off the top because we say, I know that there's a lot more where this came from. What Paul is saying is Jesus rose again on Easter Sunday and God says, see that? There's a lot more where that came from. I raised him up. I'm going to raise up a whole lot more people someday. Resurrection is the proof. So our hope is tangible because we can picture it. We can understand what a new earth is like and what new bodies will be like. And it's reliable. God proved it on Easter Sunday. 
So that leads us to the question, how do we know it's reliable? Well, think about how all religions start, except one. Here's how all religions start. Either either there's a, a, a series of myths that a culture believes over time. They've told stories over campfires. Hey, this is how the world began, and, and here's all the things that happened before any of us were around, and that, that just spreads as that population group increases in population, right? So that's how Hinduism spread, Native American religions, etc. Or a charismatic person comes along and starts a new religion. So you have Muhammad who who says, hey, I was in this cave and I was praying and Allah came to me and he dictated to me the words of the Quran and I've written them down for you and then thousands believe that guy and that's the birth of Islam and it spreads through military conquest over time. Or Joseph Smith, American, middle of the 1800s, says the angel Moroni came to me and he brought me these golden tablets on which were written the Book of Mormon and I copied them down. Here you go. Take a look at it. Oh, no, no, no. I don't have the golden tablets anymore. Moroni took them back up to heaven. Too bad. But you believe me, right? And that's how Mormonism starts. Or Gautama Buddha, a nobleman in India in ancient times, says, I have found the noble eightfold path to enlightenment and millions believe him, Buddhism is born, it spreads throughout Asia. All religions have that in common. And you know what what that is? You can't evaluate those claims. You can't say, well, let me investigate whether Muhammad was telling the truth, whether he really met with God or not, or or Joseph Smith or, or Buddha. You can't evaluate that. You have to either take his word for it or not. Christianity is unique. It's not about one guy says this happened. It's not about ancient myths that we all just accept by faith. It's about an event that actually occurred, a historical event whose claims can be evaluated, and that event is the resurrection. You can investigate the truth of that and decide whether or not you believe it. And if you decide you don't, let me just give you four things you have to deal with. If you decide that Jesus rising from the dead is just a happy little story and it wasn't meant to be taken literally, it never actually happened, then you need to explain four things that we know. Number one, you need to explain the empty tomb. So here's why this is important. When Christianity first started, it was in Jerusalem, first century, weeks after Jesus was crucified. The disciples went around saying, not, hey, here's the teachings of Jesus, follow them and you'll be saved. They didn't say that at all. No, they said, Jesus rose again. Believe in him and you'll be saved. If you wanted to stop that, and there were plenty of people who did want to stop it, if you wanted to stop that teaching, your method would be very simple. All you'd have to do is take people to that tomb where everyone knew he was buried, the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, and say, look, the tomb is still sealed. That thing has never been broken. The dead man is still inside. Or if you wanted to be absolutely sure, you'd break the seal, roll the stone away, and drag out his bones and say, see, he's a false messiah. Go on about your business. And that would have been the end of Christianity. None of us would have ever heard of it. But they didn't do that. Because everyone in Jerusalem could walk by that area and see a big, empty hole in the limestone where there was no body. What do you do with that if you don't believe in the resurrection? You might say, well, obviously his disciples broke in and stole the body. That's what they said back then. In the first century, that's what the enemies of Christianity said. 
The problem with that is the second thing you got to deal with, there were multiple eyewitnesses who said, I have seen him alive. Last week, I mentioned this, that Paul talks about all the people who saw Jesus, including 500 folks at one time. And I said, next week, we'll talk about why Paul goes into all that detail. It's because he's saying, listen, if you want to dismiss the resurrection, first go talk to those 500 people. Most of them are still alive. Go talk to them. They'll tell you. And you might say, but, but maybe they were making it up. Keep this in mind. History tells us beyond a shadow of a doubt, most of the people who claim to have seen Christ risen, maybe all of them, died a martyr's death. They were executed in gruesome ways. They were beheaded. They were stoned. They were burned alive. They were impaled. Now, let me ask you something. I I know some would say, hey, people die in the name of religion all the time. Yes, uh, probably sometime in the next few weeks, you'll see it once again. A man will strap a bomb to himself and walk into a building and blow a bunch of people up alongside of him. And you'll say, what's the difference between that and those first century Christians? I'll tell you what the difference is. That guy thinks that if he kills a lot of infidels, he's going to go to heaven because his leaders told him so. And he put his trust in them. These first century people, they weren't listening to someone else. They knew whether they were telling the truth or not. They were expressing a testimony of an eyewitness event. Now, let me ask you something. If you made up a story and someone came up to you and said, tell the truth or you're dead, wouldn't you go back on your lie? I would. I I can't think of a single lie that's worth dying for. Not one. Even if your wife says, do I look fat in these jeans? It's not worth dying for, okay? These guys died proclaiming that Christ was risen. And then third, you've got to deal with the authenticity of their accounts. We have four Gospels today because the followers of Jesus told the story, right? Now, let me, let me point something out about humanity. When we lie, and we all do it from time to time, when we lie, we always, without exception, always lie in a way that makes us look better. For instance, Ryan Lochte, our our beloved swimmer in the Olympics, who, who claimed that he was held up by gunmen in Brazil and it turned out to be false. You know when we knew he was lying? It's when he said, yeah, they, they cocked the gun and they placed it to my head and I said, whatever. That's when we knew he was lying. No one says whatever when a loaded gun is in his head. But that's how we lie, right? We want to make ourselves look more heroic. We want to make ourselves look correct and, and, and justified. But these guys, when they told the story of Jesus, they made themselves look foolish. You read the Gospels and the disciples are saying, listen, we we didn't understand Jesus at all. We didn't even know who he was until he was already gone. We had this false idea of who he was. We didn't get it. We were just, we were too hard-headed, I guess. And, And when he was arrested in his moment of greatest need, we ran like cowards. Some of our women stuck by him, but we ran. We didn't even, we weren't even there when he rose again. Again, some of our women were the ones who were first to see him. By the way, Ladies, I'm sorry to tell you this, but in the first century, a woman's testimony was not valid in court. So you wouldn't have made up a detail like that. You especially wouldn't have said that Mary Magdalene was the first eyewitness. She wouldn't be your star witness because she was well known to have had demon possession problems, 
hardly a reliable person to count on. The disciples, in, the, in their version of the story, they said, you know what, we, we were terrified when we first saw Jesus risen. We weren't overjoyed. We didn't understand what was going on. And some of us, even after he ascended into heaven, we'd seen him, we'd walked and talked with him, we'd eaten meals with him. Some of us still doubted. Why would you make up details like that? Those don't sound like the kind of stories of delusional people or con men. Those are authentic accounts. And then finally, number four, if you dismiss the resurrection of Christ, you have to explain the existence of of Christianity. Because again, unlike other religions, this is not a religion about finding a way to God through good deeds and knowledge. It's about believing in a person, Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. That's the basis of the faith. When Christianity arose, it was a tiny movement. All other movements you can name. When, when Muhammad died, Islam was already massive. Joseph Smith, when, when, he was, uh, when he was strung up by that mob in Illinois, there were already thousands of Mormons. When Jesus died, there were 120 Christians. That's how many were in the upper room. 120 people who, who believed in him enough to, to be in Jerusalem saying, what do we do next? They had the hard task of being ridiculed by the world, following a crucified Messiah, and speaking to their fellow Jews who weren't likely to believe anything they said. And yet within a few years, thousands of those same Jews had changed so completely, they were now worshiping on Sundays instead of Saturday. They were no longer offering animal sacrifices. They were believing that the Messiah actually was all along uh, prophesied to die on a cross. All of these went against thousands of years of ethnic identity and, and, and religious teaching. Moreover, they, they took the bizarre step of centering their entire religious observance on the, on the practice of communion, Lord's Supper, which was a reminder of how Jesus died. We don't do that with any other hero. When we're commemorating Martin Luther King Day in January, we don't say, boy, I remember the day he was assassinated. That was a great day. No, we remember his work, the way he lived. For Jesus, though, they said the way he died is more important than the way he lived. The way he died is everything. How do you explain that? And how do you explain the fact that, that both Jews and pagans thought that Christianity was ludicrous, and yet within three centuries, Christianity was the official religion of the Roman Empire? It didn't happen through population growth. It didn't happen through military conquest, the way other religions spread. It happened because Christ really was risen. As N.T. Wright um, of Oxford says, the emergence of the church, the emergence of the church ripped a resurrection-shaped hole in history that skeptical historians are powerless to stop up. Long ago during the days of the French Revolution, there was a man named Lepo who wanted to start his own religion. You know, a lot of the French Revolution was anti-church, and so he wanted, he wanted to create a, a religion without a God that, that secular French people would, would flock to. And he thought he had the perfect formula, and he went around giving speeches and railing against the church, and he would get a few crowds to come and applaud, but very few followers, and 
He started to get discouraged, and so he went to uh, Talleyrand, the eminent statesman, one of the key figures in the revolution, and no, no great friend of the church, by the way. And he said to Talleyrand, listen, I don't know what to do. I've got this perfect system. Nobody seems to be following me. And Talleyrand said, well, son, it's, it's very difficult to start a new religion. The only advice I have for you is if you could just get yourself crucified and rise again on the third day. See, we have a hope that is tangible. We have something real to look forward to. We have a hope that's reliable because our God is not in the ground. We serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today. I know that He is living, whatever men may say. I see His hand of mercy. I hear His voice of cheer. Just the time I need Him, He's always near. Our hope is tangible and reliable. Do you have that hope in your heart? Whatever happens in life, can you look forward to that? If not, we can get that straightened out today. But if so, think about the people in your life who don't have that hope. Let's pray for them right now. Bow your heads and close your eyes. I want you to think about friends. Think about neighbors. Think about loved ones who don't have this hope we're talking about. They're looking for it in other things, maybe in career, maybe in relationships, maybe in money, maybe in pleasure. Mention them by name before the Lord. Mention them this morning and, and say, Lord, help them to see the hope that we have. Ask Him for an opportunity to share that hope today, this week.